Well, thank you again. We're excited to be a part of a, a family of churches that believes in missions. If you are interested in doing missions, in being a part of a, a trip, we have some that are be going to be coming up in 2020. So make sure you just pay attention to that. We'll put more information out on the website and, and we'll make other announcements. But, but short-term missions, if you've never been on them, it, it's, they're beneficial for the church and we're excited to be able to serve Poland, but they're, they're almost more powerful for the people who go because it's, a, it's this booster shot of experiencing God's power, his presence, and, and really focusing in on who he is and what's he want, what he wants to accomplish in the world uh, over a period of 10 to 12 days. And it's, it's amazing. And if, especially if you've never, you know, traveled outside of the U.S. Um, or, or the state, we do some local domestic trips and then we do some international trips. Uh, we try to support our, our church plants. So in 2020, I think we're planning to go to Denver uh, as well as a few other places. But this is a great opportunity for you to, to experience God in a, in a different context and in a way that, that would challenge and transform you. Um, I've, I've had the pleasure of being on two mission trips uh, in my lifetime. Well, a few more, but, but two really transformative ones in China. And, and it's really neat to, to realize that, hey, God is not uh, an American. And, <laughs> you know, he, he's happy to speak other languages and... Um, you know, Adam and Eve were not Americans, probably. Uh, they were, they, maybe, but probably not. Probably somewhere closer to Africa. But, um, and, and so for us to be able to step out of this context and, and step out of just kind of North American Christianity to realize that God is bigger, that he's more far-encompassing than even, even what we experience here, and that, that he invites us into that is super important. So... Uh, one other, two other things. Thank you to everyone who's been involved with our, our, our outreaches. We are really working hard to impact this Sterling community, to impact Ashburn, Leesburg, Reston, Herndon. We care about this community. And so I hope that you are beginning to see and sense that we are, we are making big efforts to reach this area. And we would, we would love for you to be a part of that process. We had our Flicks on the Bricks, our first Flicks on the Bricks uh, event which was great. We got to, to shake a lot of hands, hand out a lot of, uh, a lot of bags of goodies to both children and adults um, because everyone wants free stuff. And, and we prayed with an individual. It was, it was a great opportunity. Sterling Fest is going to be another awesome opportunity for you to just enter into the community. And here's the thing. You don't have to be a professional Christian. And in fact, I would say that none of us are professional Christians. God doesn't call us to be professional Christians. He calls us to be faithful where we are. And so if, if you can, can talk to people, you should come. If you can't talk to people, you should still come. You can just hand stuff out and look at them awkwardly. And other people will talk to them. Um, we have some people who are really gifted at talking. And we have some that are less gifted at talking. And we all show up and it's a good time. But all joking aside, please take advantage of this because this is another way for you to walk out your faith in a way that, that really produces something in your own soul. And it's a way of showing our neighbors that we love them. Yeah. So please, if, you, if you'd like to be involved, you can you, you look for Mimi or, or Churchill. If you don't know where Mimi is, just listen during the service. You'll hear her. Um, because we love her and she's awesome. Um, And then one more quick plug. Uh, thank you to everyone who is involved with our small groups. It's another important way for us to build community. You know, our mission statement is that we want people to encounter Christ, 
which we, we do in all venues, but especially in this Sunday morning venue, then we want people to experience real biblical community. And that happens primarily for us in the context of small groups. Not to say it doesn't happen in other contexts. You can serve on a ministry team and, and you can experience community that way as well. You can come into one of our events and experience community, but, but day in, day out community can happen really in, in the context of small groups. And then finally, we, we, do, we do want to take this and extend this kingdom, and that's what our outreach is about. So we're excited to be doing all those things and excited to invite you into that. Thank you for being a part of that. So we've been going through a a series about men and women of the Bible, and we've been considering what it looks like for us to emulate those examples that have been given to us. Now, the Bible doesn't give every person to be an example, but there are individuals, and especially in the Old Testament, the Bible talks about they were given to us as examples, some good examples, some bad examples, Uh, not necessarily all examples of, I should live this way. You know, uh, Saul, the king, he's not a guy that you should say, oh, I should live this way. Um... Uh, Goliath is not someone we want to say, I should live this way. But there are some individuals who are exemplary and whose lives we can, we can look to as, as a, a window into what a life of faith looks like. We looked at Adam and Eve as those prototypical individuals who, who helped us to understand what it means to be a man and a woman and what that looks like as, as being image bearers of Christ, uh, well, image bearers of God. Uh, and then we talked about Noah about this individual who was a picture and a precursor to Christ, who was someone who would exemplify what it looks like to to experience the salvation and the redemption of God in the world. And so today we're going to talk about a man whose life was shaped by faith. Uh, Faith was the instrument of God's work in this man's life. So if, if God is the surgeon and Moses, who we're going to talk about, is the person on whom he's working, the instrument that he's using is the scalpel of faith. It's the, it's the conduit by which God's power, his blessing, his strength, everything flows through this trust that Moses has in God. So we're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. Uh, if you could stand with me, we're going to read this together. Now, if you're new, we read the word of God together because this is the most important thing that we can do, which is to read and reflect on the word of God. And it's good to hear it come out of your own lips and the lips of your neighbor, and just to be encouraged by the fact that this is a body of people who are formed by the word of God, who are shaped by the word of God, and who speak the word of God. So we're gonna read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. One more verse. Can we do it? 28. I'll read it. Verse 28. There it is. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Let's pray. God, this is your word to us, and we pray that we, as we reflect on this word that, that you, would, you would do a work in our souls, that faith would rise in our souls, that we would, we would really understand this assurance of things that we don't see, this hope 
of things promised, that our, our trust would be in God, in you, Lord, and in your promises, that our trust would be built up by the fact that we've seen you answer prayers, be faithful, both in the history of the Bible and in our own lives. And Lord God, I pray that for those in this room who don't have a faith or a trust in you, that you would bring faith to them, that they would see you for who you are, they would appreciate you, and they would place their trust in you. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Give it up for our AV team because they are awesome and people tend to only notice them when things go wrong. But I promise you, if there was a tally between things that I've done wrong that have caused them trouble and things they've done, done wrong, it would be like a thousand to zero. So they're awesome. And if you want to be part of that team, talk to John Patton after service. He's waving his hand. Well, he was, yes, now they're oh, awesome. So we, we're looking at, and this is one of those famous passages in Christendom, maybe it's not famous to you, but, but it's fairly well known, this kind of the hall of faith. And, and the writer of Hebrews, is, he's reflecting on these individuals who had faith in God prior to Christ. Individuals who knew that God had a plan and a purpose in the world, and they lived in light of that plan and purpose, even though they died before they really saw the fruition of that purpose in Christ. You know, we have the benefit of we live by faith, absolutely, but we, we have the benefit of having the rest of the Bible and the rest of the testimony and the fact that God gave Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, and he came, lived this perfect life that we all should have lived, died this death on the cross that we all deserve to die, and he rose again, defeating Satan, sin, and death. We have the rest of the story. They didn't have the rest of the story, so th- their faith was really a unique faith. And, and sometimes when we hear that word, it's especially, again, if you've grown up in Christendom, um, in, in church, faith kind of gets this, it, it's the word that you hear so many times that you, you begin to lose the, the idea of its meaning, right? If you say your name over and over and over, it just start, starts to sound like sounds. And, and faith can be one of those things that, you know, you've got a, a mug, uh, faith is great, and blah, blah, blah. You got the, the, the calligraphy on your wall, and, and it just begins to sound like nothing, or begins to sound like this weird um, substance that you can kind of bottle up and, you know, just sprinkle a little faith on that and uh, it'll be good. But the writer of Hebrews wants to be very clear about what he's talking about when he says faith. In, In chapter 11, verse 1, he says this, now faith is, here comes the definition, the assurance or, or the sureness of things hoped for. So there are things in the world that we hope for, and specifically he's talking about the things that God has promised. He's not just saying faith is, in, in this context, faith is not just, hey, I hope to get an Xbox at Christmas time. You know, that's, that's not faith. Well, it's a pretty shoddy faith if it's a faith. The faith he's talking about is the things hoped for that God has promised, and he goes on to say, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is more than just kind of blind, oh, that'd be nice. It is not this sort of like, God, would you maybe, can you do this? No, but it's the conviction that God, you've said this, you've done this, and I believe it. You know, if, you've, if you remember Indiana Jones, and uh, I don't remember which one it is, but it's, it's the invisible, he's at this, yes, okay, yeah, you know, the, the search for the Holy Grail or something like that. 
Yeah, she's with me. That's cool. Um, there's this one part where he's supposed to go across this great chasm and, and he doesn't understand how he can do it. And the, the, the clue, the hint has to do with this idea of faith. And he steps, well, he actually does, he doesn't have faith. He, he takes some dust and throws it on the, and he, and he sees, okay, there is this invisible pathway that I'm going to walk on. And that's the picture of faith. Is this, it's this conviction of something that's unseen. I don't see the pathway, but I know that it's there by my conviction and I'm going to step out. What faith isn't is just a belief in faith. You know, sometimes we talk about faith and, and, and it's this whole, well, you just, brother, you just got to have more faith. You know, well, you know, things are not going well in my marriage and I'm, you know, my wife and I are having troubles and well, you just got to have more faith. What does that even mean? You know, faith in What? Faith, faith is not like a ball. You need to, you need to get a big, bigger baseball. Like that's not what faith is. It's not, oh, I'm going to go to Home Depot. I'm going to get a bigger faith. No, it's faith is the conduit that connects us to something. And so he's saying you need to have faith in God. Faith in God's ability. Faith in God's goodness. Faith in God's strength. You need to connect this conduit to, to God and what he can do, what he can accomplish, what he has promised to accomplish. This is faith. Faith is trusting in a particular outcome and trusting the one who controls that outcome. Right? Moses' life was shaped by this assurance that God had a plan for his life. Look at verse 23 with me. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. It's, that's kind of a weird thing to say. They, they, by faith, and again, faith is that instrument by which God is doing something. By faith, his parents, they saw the baby, and they saw that he was beautiful. And, and what, what the writer is trying to get at is there was something in Moses that they saw, we have to treat this child as though he has a, a destiny in God. We have to treat this child as though there's something more for him than to obey the edict of the king, which if you're not familiar with the story, uh, during Moses' time, uh, the, the, the king had said that, that all male uh, Israelite children had to be killed because the Israelites were growing fast and, and, and they were afraid of them. The, um, the Egyptians were afraid of the, the Israelites kind of having some sort of coup. So they had given this edict, the, the, the boys had to die. And so they look at this boy and they say, he's beautiful, God has a purpose for him. And so they, they choose not, thankfully, to kill the baby. And so he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now this is not the primary point, but parents, there's something to be learned here about faith in your interaction with your children. You know, the world is gonna say a lot of things about who your children are, what their destiny is, and what you ought to do with them. And your job is not to take that in and, and, and let that be what defines your parenting. Your job is to say, God, I trust you and your destiny for this child. I trust you and your plan for this child. We need to look at our children with eyes of faith. We need to let our, our interactions with our children be faith-filled, defining interactions. There are moments where you look at your child or your teenager or your adult spawn and, and spawn is the way that you want to describe them. Maybe not like, 
oh dear baby, but I don't know where you came from, it surely wasn't mother. <laughs> and in those moments, you are, we are tempted to define our children by what we see, to define them by the sin that exists in them. And, and the challenge that the writer of Hebrews is giving us is to see them with the eyes of faith. And again, faith is not some sort of just generic, you know, object, but we see them with eyes that recognize that God has a purpose for their lives, that God has given them to us with a destiny, that God has empowered us to raise them up in the way they should go. Even if it doesn't seem like that, even if the discipline doesn't seem to be sticking, we are called to parent by faith. When you seek to define your child, you need to define them by faith. When others seek to define your children, you are, you are responsible to bring a dimension of faith. When your kids, if your kids are in public school, private school, homeschool, co-op, whatever the case may be, when your kid is around people who seek to define your child, when your children are around people who seek to define your children, you still have a responsibility in that context to bring a dimension of faith so if your teacher says, you know, Billy's struggling in school, they're not really, you know, maybe they have this issue or this issue or this issue, I, I'm not against you pursuing the resources that you need to help your child. What I'm against and what the Bible is against is other people poorly or incorrectly defining your children apart from faith. Does that make sense? And we're not talking about foolishness. We're not talking about just blindly believing what you, whatever you want to believe, we're talking about seeing what the Bible says about your children, about what the Bible says about being part of the covenant and saying that is who my child is regardless of what I see, regardless of what you say. Does that make sense? Good. God has empowered us as parents to shape our children's lives by means of the assurance that we have of God and his plan. Your children may not have the faith that's needed to do what God wants to do in their life. That's your job. Now, there's a point at which they have to exercise faith as well, but, but your job as parents is to begin to pick them up and carry them while they cannot carry themselves with the faith that you have that God is good and he is sovereign. Amen. To create an environment in your household that is a household of, of, of faith, where prayer permeates the atmosphere, where, where Bible reading permeates the atmosphere, where worship permeates the atmosphere. And it needs to be a household of grace, where joy permeates the atmosphere and forgiveness permeates the atmosphere. You know, parents, we have to say we're sorry sometimes without excuse, without hedging it. You know, Billy, I'm wrong. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I sinned against you. Forgiveness comes and, and apology is, apology is not me turning over my, my right to parent. It's me showing them how to live rightly. If we, if we don't do that in our households, and I, I call myself up to this as well, if we don't do this in our households, why would we expect them to be able to walk out grace and forgiveness and not live in bitterness in other contexts? Our households need to be households of grace. And that means we need to be connected by faith to the one who gives grace. Moses' parents shaped his life by faith. Not only that, he grew up and he identified by faith with the people of God. Look at verses 24 and 25 with me. 
By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now Moses, I mean, he, he had a pretty great setup. I mean, considering the fact that he didn't have peers because they all had died, and he was living, you know, not a, a renegade's life, but, but his parents were so wise as to get, them, get him set up in the king's house, and, and, and for a time, he even got to live at home and have his mom be the, you know, the, the nurse, the, and she cared for him. But he grew up in, in Egypt. He grew up as a, an aristocrat, as, as part of the monarchy. He was trained. He was taught. He was educated. He had, he had it all. He had everything. There are some that even speculate that maybe he was in line to become a, a leader, if not the leader. Now that's, again, that's speculation. The Bible doesn't speak towards some of the, the older historians were like, maybe that was the case. But just imagine with me what he had before him. And yet, and yet he chose living between these two worlds, the world of, of having it all, of Egypt, of, of, of having wealth and, and ease, and then seeing his brothers and sisters who were oppressed and suffering he had the option of, of choosing a life of ease over a life of affliction, but he chooses by faith this life of affliction. Right, listen, listen to way, the way it says it. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called son of a Pharaoh's daughter. He wasn't just having some sort of teenage rebellion, you know, I'm not who you, no. He had connected with the plan and the purpose of God to such a degree that he saw like all the, the piles of money and all the ease and all the relational good stuff that could have come to him because of his position and, and somehow he could look at that with eyes of faith and say, that's worthless. That's not what God has intended for me. You and I, we live in this world, but we're called to not live of the world. See, this life of faith, much like Moses, is one in which we're invited into a lot of things. We're invited to take part in a lot of things, whether it's at your job, or it's at home, or it's on the internet, or it's on TV, or it's in your relationships with your coworkers, or relationships with your friends on college. There are a lot of things to which you're invited, but which you must, you must by faith, say no to. We're caught in the world, but not of the world. And, and the choice is either to choose to live by faith, and when I say that, I mean to live believing that the promises and the pleasures of God are better than the promises and pleasures of the world, or choosing ultimately what, what the Bible describes as the pleasures of sin. Now, living in, in the household of Egypt was not necessarily a sin, and, and being the adopted son of the Pharaoh, or the adopted son of the Pharaoh's daughter was not necessarily a sin, but for him to have chosen that life over against the life to which he is called, that would have been sin. And it would have been strictly because this was more pleasant and pleasurable. And it is not bad for you to go see such and such movie necessarily. It is not, not necessarily bad for you to go and be at this particular job or to uh, have your kids in this particular school. But if you're doing any of these things apart from the call that God has for you, apart from faith, then it is sin. And what's interesting is that when, when 
Moses fights sin, he fights it by faith. Look at verse 25. He says, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. It goes on to say, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now sometimes when we think about, okay, I gotta stop this habit, I gotta, I gotta stop sinning, I gotta stop cussing, I gotta stop you know, uh, being mean or, or being bitter or whatever, the idea is that I just want to stop, right? And that's not bad, right? If you're sinning right now, stop. That is appropriate. And there are other places in the Bible where it talks about that. But if we leave it at that, it becomes this kind of white knuckle, me versus my sin. And, and, you know, something comes and you get distracted and then you get punched in the face by your sin. That, that was never the intent of God was for us to just, just try to exercise ever-increasing self-control, although that's part of it. How does, how does he overcome it? How does he overcome it? Words. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. When, when Moses looked at his life and he looked at what, what was to come, being rejected by his family, being reproached, being afflicted and put in pain, maybe being put back into slavery, he considered that more worthwhile than these things. It wasn't just a, a change of will, it was a change of appreciation. It was a change of, of understanding what was more valuable. And he, he, he had said that, that Christ is more valuable. If you, the, the pursuit of Christ, the pursuit of a Christian life is not just trying to follow these rules. It's following Jesus and loving Jesus. And if we follow and love Jesus, he's gonna help us to follow those rules. Does that make sense? He identified with Christ as he identified with the people. Now the reality is, is we, we have two options. You have two options. You can either choose temporary pleasures now and no eternal reward, or you can choose temporary afflictions now and eternal reward. And the, and the crazy thing about it is it's not just temporary afflictions because God blesses us in this life. You know, for a Christian, this is as close as you get to hell. And on some days you're like, yes, that is true. <laughs> Other days you're like, this is amazing. This is so good. For those who would choose not to follow Jesus, this is as close as you can get to heaven. Those are our two options. And these, this, is, this is the divide that Moses was choosing between by faith. Now the reality is this life does have afflictions and identifying with Christ means identifying with his afflictions in this life. You know, I'm, I'm not gonna pretend like Moses' life was great. He, he kills a man, he runs away, lives in the wilderness as a shepherd for 40 years, after he had lived 40 years. So, and then at the age of 80, God's like, I got a plan for you. And he's probably like, I'm kind of, I'm tired. <laughs> and so he goes and he brings the people out of Egypt and 
For 40 more years, he wanders with these knuckleheads, and they're like, we want onions. We had onions in Egypt. I'm serious. There's li- he did literally complain about not having onions. I mean, if, imagine leading those people for 40 years. That, you'd lose your mind. So his life on earth was not, it wasn't all roses, but he was able to walk with God. He actually talked to God face to face, and we believe by faith that he is with God now. He had a hard life, and he entered into the afflictions of Christ in order that he might experience eternal blessing and pleasures. This is, this is what our life has to follow. This is the same arc that Jesus followed. Jesus didn't come to earth and, and live this amazing, awesome, flashy life and become king of kings and lord of lords in a way that, that everyone was like, yes, we're going to follow him. We have one world government and he's the king and it's totally awesome and we're living in the light of that. No, he came as a poor man doing a, a blue collar job, teaching, follow, leading 12 knuckleheads who, who were constantly arguing with him and with one another. And then three years later, he died. Murdered, horribly murdered. And that, that, was, his, that was the arc of his life. Now, the, the reality is, is it goes up from there. He, he was resurrected. He, he sits at the right hand of God. His name is far above all rule and authority and above every name that is named, not only this age, but the one to come, as Paul says. But he had to go through that humiliation in order to come to the glorification. And, and we would be foolish to think that, that we could kind of skip that first part and get to the second part. But we can, we can do the first part because we live by faith. Because we recognize and we see, we have convictions of the thing to come. We have conviction of, of what's to, to come, this glorification that's going to come. Ultimately, in choosing Christ, Moses chose to overcome his fear with faith. If you look at verse 27, it says this. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Uh, I wanted to go into greater detail, but we're running out of time. This was an interesting passage, and if you want to go back, you're welcome to. There are two options in, 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 in interpreting this, right? Because Moses left twice. He left the first time when he killed a man in, in chapter two of Exodus. He killed a man found out, oh, people know about this, and he ran. Some commentators say that even though he was fearful, he overcame that fear by faith, and that's what this is talking about. There are some challenges with that, the challenge being that it talks about him specifically being afraid, but it's possible that the writer of Hebrews is interpreting for us and saying, yes, he was afraid, but that that fear was overcome by faith. And and the, the reason that they would try to argue that is because chronologically this does make sense. Leaving for Midian comes before the Passover. The other time he leaves is when he brings everyone out and everyone leaves for the Exodus. Now this one makes a lot of sense because no, he was not afraid of the king at this point. He was absolutely not afraid of the king. The problem is this solution is kind of out of line because Passover happens before the Exodus. And so uh, I, I struggled with this, but ultimately, either way, we are to look at this. The reality is that Moses overcame fear by faith in God. He overcame fear by faith in God. 
Now, you and I, we may have legitimate fears in our life, health fears, family fears, fears about our children, concerns, worries. The way to overcome that, again, is not this sort of white knuckle, I'm just gonna not worry. It's to believe that there's a bigger God than your fear. It's to connect that conduit of faith that says God is both good and he is sovereign. If God was just good and not sovereign, we'd have problems because he'd just be that nice guy. I wish I could do something, but I can't. If he was just sovereign but not good, that'd be really even worse. But he is good and he is sovereign. So the good things that he wants to do, he does. Moses overcame fear by faith. If you are in a position where you are struggling with fear, the solution is not to work harder. It's not, try to, it's not to try to run away, try to escape. The solution is to go and say, God, you who are greater, you who are stronger, you who are good, help me to understand how I am to relate to this situation. I'm not saying that your situation isn't difficult. I'm saying that God is bigger than whatever difficult situation you're in. Faith was the conduit for courage and it was ultimately the way to obedience. 28 says this, by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now we've seen the, the movie with Charlton Heston or with, uh, maybe you've seen the cartoon, or, but, but you've seen the ending so we're like, yes, the 10th plague comes, it's totally awesome, they're completely vindicated. But imagine being Moses and, and there's literally like the possibility that he could be wrong, either that the destroyer destroys everyone or that he's wrong and no one gets destroyed and he has to look at Pharaoh in the eye the next day when, when nothing has happened and he's found to be powerless. These are the fears that are coming up in his soul. This is the possibility that he could be completely wrong. That even though God has shown up time and time and time and time, nine times again and again, he could be wrong. But what does he do? He walks in obedience. By faith, he obeys. It says that by faith, he kept the Passover. God had given him instructions. He, he could have said, you know what, guys? Let's just, let's just try to escape now. Let's, get, let's just get as many people as we can and let's go now. Or he could have said, you know what? This thing isn't working out. Pharaoh is not, he's not agreeing. Maybe we can come to terms and there, there can be some sort of detente, some sort of a truce. But no, he says, I'm going to believe by faith. And he kept the Passover and, and they put blood on the lintel and the doorposts so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Faith allowed him to trust God even when he didn't know the outcome. That's, that's what faith is. Faith allows you to trust God when you don't know the outcome. And faith allows you to walk in obedience when you don't know the outcome. And obedience that doesn't involve faith isn't really that great of obedience. Really? If you think of obedience that, that is prompted by something else, it's really manip manipulation. You know, if I do this, then God is gonna bless me with uh, stuff. If, if I do this, God is gonna do this. Or if, it, it's, it's just sort of trying to, trying to get God to do something. But, but we believe that God is good, that he rewards, and part of his reward is more of him that kind of faith allows us to obey in a way that honors God. That kind of faith allows 
a person to say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, even to the point of dying. That kind of a faith allows you to go and, and ask people, hey, would you like to support me for this mission trip? Amen. <laughs> that kind of faith allows us to obey. Moses was a man, he was, a, he was an extraordinary man in one sense, an extraordinary individual in one sense, and in another sense, he was a normal person who was connected to an extraordinary God. You know, the writers of the New Testament reflect back on the Old Testament and they say these people were examples for us. Not because they were superheroes with capes, but because they knew how to trust in God. And that is something that God calls each and every one of you today to do. Maybe you've been walking and, and you haven't been trusting God. Today is the day to turn away from whatever you have been trusting and turn to God. Maybe you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and you've never looked at your life and said, what is my purpose? How do I connect with my purpose? And you've never considered God who's created you, who's formed you, who's shaped you, who's made a way through redemption in Jesus Christ for you. And I would say you can connect with the God who loves you and who has made a way by faith in what he's already done. Moses was a man of faith and he calls us to be men and women of faith.